Hello, welcome to Recapping with Delora and Ashley. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Recapping Podcast. Also, comment, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're on all the things. We would love to hear your ratings of the movies and shows we review. Email us your audio file to recappingpodcast at gmail.com and we will play it during the show. Or DM us on Instagram and we will post and read it on air. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you. Delora. It is our 50th episode. And let the church say a yay man. Okay, we made it. We made it. We made it. Recap nation, recappers, whatever we still think about calling y'all. We made it. Thank you so much for joining us for this special 50th episode. Before we get into it though, Delora, we got to take a shot, a sip, however you want to look at it to celebrate. Absolutely. What do you have over there? I made this little concoction with (laughs) the rocks vodka. (laughs) (laughs) Still sipping on that Terramana. Still sipping on the Terramana, and I have like this uh, Fuji apple juice, and I added some lemon and cinnamon and nutmeg. So I'm calling it my apple pie. Okay. Well, <laughs> what are you sipping on? I'm sipping, you know, as usual, crown apple. <laughs> I do not steer too far from my boo thing. Crown. Yes. So sticking with the whiskey, but cheers, girl, to 50. All right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Woo. Y'all don't judge me. It's been a little bit since I took a shot. <laughs> I've been over here drinking wine majority of our episodes. I've become a little lightweight. All right. So guys, in celebration of our 50th episode, we're switching it up a little bit. Laura and I had our first interview. We sure did. Girl, with my college roomie, Teresa, who is a producer out in Hollywood. She's currently working on the spinoff to Amazon series, Bosch. Delora, did you enjoy this interview? It was fantastic, Ashley. I couldn't get over the fact that we had our very own Hollywood insider like on her show. (laughs) Exactly. We got some great gems from her, including, you know, some information about her journey, as well as some advice. So guys, let's listen in. Hey, Teresa, how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Thank you you so much. Uh, We're good. Thank you for joining us all the way from the West Coast. Exactly. We have an actual producer on our show today. Can you believe this? (laughs) I cannot believe it. I'm on an actual podcast, so that's also very exciting. For Wait, me. Our, this is a first. I was gonna say, so you are our first interview, and we are your mm-hmm. first podcast. So we are experiencing some firsts together today. Indeed, I'm so yes. honored. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> and I've already spoken on this, but Teresa and I know each other because we were 
freshman college roommates together at Wright State University back in wow. Ohio. Go so, you Raiders. know, that was only like a year ago, Teresa. You know, we're only like 22, 23 years old. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> One year ago. <laughs> exactly. But no, thank you so much for joining us. And the reason why, you know, we have you on the podcast today is because you've had quite a career journey, my friend. When yes. we were in college together, you were majoring in music and in yep. drums in particular. And you went from that to you are currently a producer. You were on the Amazon series Bosch that just wrapped its seventh and final season. And there's a subsequent spinoff in the works that you're also producing. So Correct. the first question I have for you <laughs> is please walk us through your journey from that time as a music major to become your producer and also just as a part of that how difficult was it to break into an industry without having those Hollywood connections yeah so uh, you know as as these things go it was quite quite the journey that had its own twists and turns yeah I was a music major um music education specifically with a, an emphasis on percussion. I am a percussionist. Um, I still play drums. Yeah, I, I think after college and, and kind of my last couple of years of college, I realized that I didn't want to have to fight for my job in a place where the arts were not appreciated. So growing up mm -hmm. in Southwest Central Ohio, mm -hmm. it's all about football. It's all about sports you know, and the arts are secondary to everything. And they are the first thing that are on the chopping block anytime a levy, you know, has to be passed to fund mm -hmm. the schools. Because and you I wanted to don't teach, have, you were considering I wanted to teach education. Correct. Yeah. So I, the goal was I, I really wanted to be um, a high school marching band director, you know, drumline, all of those, those fun, noisy things. And also, so I love everything you're saying right now. So. <laughs> Yeah. I, was a, I was in the color guard for marching band and played the clarinet okay. uh, for symphonic band, but I'm, I'm right here. I'm right here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, you know how underappreciated the marching band is. Everybody mm -hmm. uses halftime to go up and get nachos and not to watch all of the hard work that the kids have put in on the field. And that's not a good feeling. And I loved teaching, um, you know, the, some, the student teaching that I had done when I was in college. Um, I worked with a couple of local marching bands teaching the, the drum line. And, and that was really great and really rewarding, but just the lack of support from basically every community around Ohio. There were a couple of schools. I mean, Ashley, you probably remember like Centerville High School had this incredible band program and had an incredible community behind them. But that was, that was pretty rare. And I just didn't have the constitution for it. So finished my degree, got my BA in music. And then I treaded water for a while working at the cinema that I had, you know, worked at through, you know, all, all through college is how I put myself through school. Um, Delora and I, Delora and I both said we're missed job opportunities for us looking <laughs> back. But <laughs> we're definitely the movie theater files, was, right? <laughs> it was yes. great. It was great. I yeah. I mean, you know, my first job at the movie theater, I worked in the concession stand, and then by the time I graduated, I was managing the place, um, which was great. And they were very good to me, and I got all of the free popcorn and movies I could stomach. And <laughs> it's not terrible. Extra butter, of course. <laughs> Extra butter. But yeah, so I realized, you know, that I, I didn't want to stay in Ohio. I wanted to move somewhere a little more liberal, you know, at the time being a queer woman in an interracial relationship, it wasn't the most friendly place for either of us. So when we decided to move to California, it was like, wait, 
I love movies. I love TV. I have managerial skills. I've been running this cinema. Like maybe there's something I can do in Hollywood. So um, I'm a planner. So we knew about a year in advance that we were going to move to LA and we were going to save a bunch of money because we didn't know anybody and we didn't have jobs. So I took that year to really research the industry um, to really figure out what are the jobs in Hollywood that with my own skills, either as a musician, as a teacher, or as a manager that I already had that I could then apply to the industry so that I knew where I wanted to go. Very mm-hmm. smart. Um, yeah. So I figured that out. And then, and then we came out here and I, again, I knew nobody. And then it was like a series of happy accidents falling into unpaid an unpaid internship then had a friend who got a job on something and was able to get me in with that production coordinator. And then I ended up working my way out of the indie only paying in meals and credit world <laughs> into, <laughs> into union high budget movies and then television. And then once I landed at Bosch, I started as an office PA on season three. And I quickly realized that one of the executive producers Um, who became my boss and mentor, that he was going to need a new assistant for season four. And I saw that as my opening. And then I just worked really hard to prove my capabilities and to prove that I was smart and hungry. And, um, you know, he kept me around and kept giving me more and more responsibility and empowered me and encouraged me and taught me. And then uh, by season seven of Bosch, I was the associate producer. And that's the short story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's incredible. I love the series of happy accidents that helps you to get mm-hmm. there. But obviously you put in a lot of hard work to get to where you are, Teresa. Yes. And I know I joked at the beginning that we're only two weeks and a year out from <laughs> the time we were freshmen, but give us a window of how long did it really take you? What's the span of time we're looking at Oof. that it took you to kind of get to where you are today? I, and, and I should also be clear that um, I've made very fast progress. So I was very lucky. And I think, I know your follow-up question is, you know, how hard is it to get into the industry? Mm-hmm. The, the answer is extremely difficult. And the answer is, it's really about luck. The long answer for how I got from Ohio to here is when I first moved out, because if you don't have any connections in the industry, it's, an, it's really, really difficult to break in because it's, it's such a strange industry, it's such a strange job that people are more likely to hire someone who they either already have a familiarity with or someone they trust knows. That's easier. So that's how most people are hired. I answered a Craigslist ad for an unpaid internship that wow. seemed kind of sketchy, but eh, whatever, we'll give it a shot. Cause, cause, <laughs> room. Exactly. Cause I'd, been, I'd been out here for a few weeks with just picking up like little jobs here and there. So this unpaid internship for a production company, I went to the interview. It was in the first level of a house <laughs> in Silver Lake, which again felt sketchy. But when I walked in, I felt like, meh, these people probably don't produce porn. So I'll give it a shot. <laughs> probably (laughs) that is where my mind was headed but exactly yeah no and I pulled up and it's like I thought it was an office but it was actually just a house and you have to go into the back gate and go in the back door of this house I was like oh my god there's something wrong here and it wasn't it's just a small production company they ended up hiring me as an intern despite having no experience just because I don't know I think the person it was another intern who had read my application and he liked my cover letter so like I guess have a good cover letter. I don't know. But anyway, I got in with them 
And that directly produced absolutely no meaningful work and produced no meaningful connections because it was such a small company. They were doing, you know, kind of designed to be viral internet things or booking crew here and there for like daytime talk shows that needed a like a Los Angeles unit. It was that kind of stuff, totally small potatoes. However, one of my intern friends had been hired on The Voice but never actually worked on The Voice. She had been hired as an alternate, but she put it on her resume anyway, because why wouldn't you? She cold emailed the coordinator on the second season of Agent Carter, who happened to like The Voice and pulled her resume and hired her based on a lie. (laughs) And And then my friend, when they did additional photography, she had passed my resume to that coordinator who passed it to another PA who was staffing independent things who then passed my resume to another coordinator. And then those guys independently, those ladies ended up hiring me for other things. My first big movie was additional photography on Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Mm-hmm. And then I, I did love Ghostbusters. I did yep. the new Ghostbusters. I did um, additional photography also on La La Land. And so once mm-hmm. I was in that world, because my friend lied on her resume <laughs> and then got me into it. Once I was in that world, then it started becoming easier to find work. And then that was mm-hmm. how I was recommended by the coordinator on the Tim Burton movie to the coordinator on Bosch. And then he hired me as a PA, but, but just, just the amount of like happenstance. So like, yeah. yes, I've been successful, but the, the amount of just like happenstance and luck that had to line up in order for me to be here is completely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> But it's still, you say it was quick, but it's still been almost 10 year journey for you. Well, yeah, I've been in LA for seven. So I've been in LA for seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so from the time I moved here, I did, yeah, like independent kind of PA work for a year or so. And then I was a PA on Bosch for a year. And then I was the producer's assistant for like three or four I don't even remember what time it is. Like, what year is it? <laughs> Where are we? Yeah. Um, 2021. 2020 threw us all off, by the way. Yeah. Honestly, Absolutely. Well, and it's also, the dark it's, also ages. A blur. <laughs> it's also a blur for me because Peter Jan Brugge, the executive producer that I've worked closely with now for years, he stays on for the whole season, if essentially for the whole year. He doesn't, he, he'll take a small hiatus. So the seasons like don't have clear beginning and ends for us. Mm, we're just the way it does on. for us as viewers. Yeah, correct. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so it's always kind of like, oh, wait, when did we really finish? When did we really start? Yeah. So it's, so for me, actually, if you think about the fact that on season three of a television show, I was a production assistant. And then by season seven of that television show, I was an associate producer. That's extremely fast. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but I was lucky. I have, you know, they're, they're good people to work for. And, and yeah, they were willing to let me grow. And that's also very unusual. So it's hard to get in. And then it's also hard to find a team that understands that at some point they will retire and they need to be fostering a younger Ooh, generation of filmmakers. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point, Teresa. So, I have, yeah. I have one uh, follow-up real quick before Delora hops in. And that is, first of all, Bosch has reeled me in. I texted you last night really? that I was watching <laughs> and I am at the yes. end of season one and it has <gasps> hooked me. Okay. I'm so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be calling you and asking you many questions at some point Anytime. in time. <laughs> but you've talked about being an associate producer. Give us a little bit of background of what you actually do as an associate producer on the show. Okay. I'm like, I, you hear producer, but there's different types of producers, correct? Correct. 
Mm-hmm. So there, there are all kinds of producers. It's so complicated and it means different things in television and features. Yeah. Producer, producer can be a lot of things. So you can have producers who are writers. So a lot of times if you see someone credited for like a single episode as the writer of that episode, but then they have a consulting producer title or supervising or even executive producer, those are writer producers and they are in the writer's room and they're breaking story and they have more responsibility, much more responsibility storytelling wise than like a staff writer does. So that's like a writing producer. You have a line producer who is someone who's all about the budget. They are all about, it's like budget, it's logistics, it's big picture, making sure that the machine is moving and making sure that everything is oiled and funded. Um, But the line producers generally are separated from the creative, not to say that they don't have anything to do with the creative because in some respects, everybody does, but they're much more focused on after it's on the page, like, you know, what does the crew need to do and what do we need to do for the crew in order to make the page come to life in like a physical production kind of way. The kind of producing that I do want to continue doing and the kind of producing that my boss has done is kind of both worlds. So he is not a writer. I am not a writer. He's a director. Maybe someday I'll be a director. Yes, girl. <laughs> but for yes. right now, but for right now, I'm thrilled to focus on producing. But basically, you know, we we kind of exist with a foot in both worlds. So not writers, but still, you know, very dialed into the creative. Um, you know, very much my, my boss has a seat at the table creatively. He is, you know, kind of the visual storyteller as far as the EPs are concerned, the executive producers, you know, he's, he's the guy who is really dialed into camera. He's really dialed into the rhythm of visual storytelling. He's at all of the color timings. He's really involved in hiring the cinematographers and he's, he's kind of the producing director on our show where, where he's the one who during prep, he really guides the directors and makes sure that there is a visual consistency across the season and, and across all of the episodes. Whereas you have our executive producer head writer, Eric Overmeyer, who does that on the page. So he keeps the writing consistent. And so I do that at a baby scale. <laughs> so I... I am dialed into the budget. And again, Peter Jan is, he's, he's very, he's, he's the arbiter of physical production, I guess. He, you know, he, he is the end all be all of, do we approve this money for this? Do we get this equipment? Do we do all these things? We have a line producer who actually, she also, uh, she also worked for Peter Jan in the nineties. She was his assistant on a lot of his big features. Um, and, you know, obviously he turned her into an amazing line producer, but so Peter Jan bridges the gap, um, but there's a lot of different kinds of producers. All so you have, information. <laughs> yeah. So you, so you have, you have the people that kind of do both. So, so the other thing with, with PJ and then with what I want to do is to kind of be that bridge in communication. So to kind of be that person who understands creatively, this is what we want to do. This is what the story is saying. We can read a script. We understand character. We understand storytelling, but we also understand the limits of physical production. And we understand what the crew is going through and we understand what it really takes to, to make this happen. So when we have a situation where maybe the script doesn't agree with reality, Peter Jan is the person who really steps in and says, okay, this is what really needs to happen because we can't do this. Or 
the crew could do this instead, or this is a location that we could go to that's actually more realistic for, for the visual medium. Um, because it's very different to write something on a page and to imagine it than it is to actually execute it. Absolutely. That was amazing. Oh. Thank you so much. <laughs> Delora, um, next question. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm going to go ahead and, and tap into some of the things you were mentioning earlier about your, your journey to where you are today. A couple of weeks ago, Ben Stiller made news and uh, <laughs> he said that Hollywood is a meritocracy and um, it's all about, you know, hard work, you know, elbow grease, mm-hmm. so to speak. But is it, or is no. it a, a, a hot bed of nepotism? <laughs> it is a hot bed of nepotism. And let me say, and maybe this is gonna get me blackballed and blacklisted and on oh, Ben no, Stiller's shit list, but I think it is absolutely rich that someone like Ben Stiller, who comes from Hollywood comedy royalty, yes. to say that it is anything but a hotbed of nepotism. I'm sorry, sir. I think he's talented. I like his movies. I think he's wonderful. But I think if he thinks that it's just hard work that has gotten him his career, he is on a different plane of existence because (laughs) no, it is a hotbed of nepotism. Hard work doesn't mean shit if you can't get your foot in the door. Ooh, speak those big facts, Teresa. (laughs) Love this fire. Okay. (laughs) I feel very passionate about it. You can work, you know, I, I work very hard. Everybody works very hard and hard work does matter. But there are so many people at such high levels of this industry that are just flat out incompetent. And it doesn't matter because daddy is somebody. Yeah. You know, somebody could be a partner at an entertainment law firm or at an agency, or somebody could be a producer on yada yada. And it's just if, if you look at who their family is, sometimes it tells you exactly how they got to where they are. Now, there are a lot of those people that are genuinely talented, you know, you, mm-hmm. you have people like, like Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's son, he's an incredible director, he's incredibly talented, but he mm-hmm. got his foot in the door because of who he is. And I think that, I think that that's okay. I mean, obviously, any parent wants their child to do well, anybody who has a friend, they want to help out and open those doors. And I think that's normal mm-hmm. in every industry. Mm-hmm. But I think because this is such a personality driven industry, that I think it's a little worse. Yeah. And I think this um, ties back into a conversation you and I had too about just diversity and why it's difficult Mm -hmm. for people of different backgrounds and ethnicities to break in because you do have already this issue of it's about who you know, it's about who you're connected to. And then we talked about the fact that because it's so difficult to even get out to the LA area based on the expense of it, and be able to Absolutely. live and work and do all those things that it's more likely that it's going to be young, affluent white kids who are going to make Absolutely. their way out there and be able to break in before other diverse backgrounds of people. Completely. I mean, you know, even for me, I was really fortunate, you know, I'm obviously white and I come from not an extremely affluent background, but middle-class, I mean, and middle-class in Ohio goes a lot farther than middle-class out here does. And yeah, I I had the privilege of a good education and an excellent support system. So when I decided to drop everything and move to LA, even though I did work hard to save money, I had a support system. So if I ever needed help, which I didn't really have to ask for help, but if I ever needed help, my mother was there and had 
the means to be able to help me. I was able to afford to live in Los Angeles. I have always lived in Los Angeles. I've never even lived in the Valley. You know, I have always lived within 20 minutes of my workplace. Um, and I've always been able to have a car, which is absolutely critical. It, you can't you can't break into this industry if you don't have a car. I mean, it happens. People do it. But that's also it's it's just the truth. You know, if you're going to be a PA, the production needs you to be able to drive and do runs and pick up lunch and do all those things. And if you can't do that, they can't hire you. Yeah. And then and if you live too far out of the city, if you know, if the only place you can afford to live in is Ontario, California, which is, you know, an hour or something, depending on traffic, it could be six hours, you know, east of here. If that's the only place you can afford to live and you're looking for your first big break job, maybe they call you in in the morning. You might get a call at 8 a.m. saying, hey, can you be here by 10? And that's not necessarily possible unless you can live within Los Angeles or, or in the Valley in a place that's accessible. And, and that's a, a huge, huge financial hurdle. Absolutely. To kind of piggyback on that too, you work on a show that's centered around a homicide detective in the LAPD, Mm -hmm. right? So given the events of 2020, particularly the murder of George Floyd, what was that experience like for you and for your show? Yeah. So I think I can, I can speak very much to the production perspective, but I think there's a storytelling angle that you guys definitely are interested in. And I think The first thing is the show is, yeah, it centers around an LAPD homicide detective. The show honestly does have a very friendly relationship with the LAPD. We shoot exteriors at the actual Hollywood police station. Um, We shoot exteriors at the actual police administration building downtown. You know, we've shot outside of city hall. We've, we've done all of these things with, um, with, you know, basically unfettered access because the LAPD you know, has a, has a friendly relationship. However, I do think this show has never shied away from the darker elements of it. We're not here to be a propaganda arm of the LAPD and we're not here to, to, you know, make them look rosy and good. Um, I think the show has always tried to be very grounded in reality from that perspective. And, and I think a lot of that is due to our very diverse cast. I mean, Ashley, you've seen the first season and it's a pretty diverse cast. And I think our writers and directors have always taken pains to, you know, to be representative of what the city of Los Angeles looks like and the city of LA looks like. You know, I think also like from a production perspective, we kind of flew under the radar. So we didn't start shooting until after most of the protests had quieted down. Mm -hmm. We were writing, we were in the offices. I remember we were in the office when the protests were coming down Melrose and they came up Vine Street and like the CVS pharmacy and the pavilions grocery store that are right next to our offices, the windows got busted up and and all of that. And, you know, so that was pretty interesting that kind of being in the middle of it, but being at work and like writing a television show. And it, it was, it was just this really bizarre, like, what are we even doing? Like, what are we doing here? There's all of this happening. Yeah. And we're just like, we're sitting here. It's, you know, it was, it was, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering the question. The way you- did that for a lot of people on a lot, <laughs> yeah. on a lot of different levels, you know, with the pandemic and how it affected so many people, people's health, you know what I mean? And yeah. 
And then, you know, understanding the racial reckoning and things like that is just, yeah. it makes you reprioritize, like, what yeah. is this all for? Exactly. <laughs> what is it all for? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I, I think also, I do, I do think that the show, trying to be grounded in reality, I think also there is the acknowledgement from the writer's room that, you know, although we, we do have a diverse cast and we have a diverse writer's room, this also isn't the show and I think the higher ups on the show have no illusions that this is the show that that is entitled to speak to things that these are not Mm -hmm. necessarily the people that it's not it's not our place to pontificate because I mean at the end of the day if you look at all of our executive producers there's one woman of color who was an executive producer on season seven and the others are white men and I think it's I, I think the I think the struggle has always been walking the line of acknowledging the problems, acknowledging the disparities, and and telling an honest story, while also walking the line of understanding that at the end of the day, our head writer is a white is a is a white man of a certain age, and is he the person to really dig into the story, or do we leave that to someone who can really speak from experience? And I think I think that that's there's always been that acknowledgement. From a production perspective, again, we started shooting after after things had calmed down a little bit. But we were we did keep an eye on where the protests were happening. We kept an eye on Black Lives Matter LA and March and Rally and like a few of the of the of the organizations and social justice organizations, just to make sure if they were holding a rally that we stayed out of their way. <laughs> and you know, we were shooting elsewhere. And if there were major holidays coming up or holiday weekends or big weekends that there was something happening politically, we just made sure our schedule kept us away from downtown, kept us away from the Hollywood station, and kept us out of neighborhoods that might be agitated by our presence of like shooting a TV show. Uh, so we tried to be respectful of that. Okay. Um, and and we, we do, we shoot LA for LA. So, you know, there are times where the story takes us into South LA, the story takes us into East LA. And I think our locations department has always done a good job of trying to be very respectful of the neighborhood, to be good neighbors, to be, because we're guests, we're guests in this neighborhood. And, you know, I think, I think we've always taken pains and always tried to recognize like, look, we're going into a sensitive neighborhood that doesn't have a good history with the LAPD and we're bringing in fake cop cars and we're bringing in a ton of fake cops into their neighborhood and we're disrupting the flow of life there for a day. So we try to just be super friendly and super respectful and, you know, have as little impact as possible on the yeah. neighborhood when we're there. I think that's I think that's great to be mindful of. And you asked if you answered my question, you absolutely, absolutely. did because you can only speak to the experience that you've had. Yes. And again, I know that we all had a lot that we went through with 2020 to Dolores point, but in particular because of the show subject matter, I just wondered how much more of that factored into not only the content, but also some of the decisions or conversations that were happening behind the scenes. So you absolutely yeah. did answer my question. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think also, you know, another another thing to bring up that, you know, from my perspective, I'm one of the few. Am I the only? I think I I, I may have been the only like queer woman in. I'm not in the writers' room, but I work out of the writers' office. But our executive producers have also always had like an open door policy. There have been things that have come up over the seasons that I've either bumped on or I felt are important to include. 
And the executive producers absolutely listened to me. I mean, and who am I? As a PA, there were a couple of, or as an assistant, there were a couple of things in a previous season that bumped on me from a queer perspective. And they listened to me and they addressed it and they removed it or they tweaked it. Um, for season seven, uh, detect Lieutenant Billets, uh, the Amy Aquino character, she goes through some serious like harassment because she's a woman, because she's a woman who is queer in a position of power. And that storyline, I actually felt needed to be punchier. And I actually felt needed to hit the fact that she was a lesbian. You know, it started as she was just a woman in power. And um, one of my really good friends, Asokwe Vasquez, he wrote episode two where, where her in season seven, where this storyline really takes off for her. And Asokwe and I had a conversation and I said, look, if she was really being targeted and harassed for being a woman, her sexuality would be part of it. So instead of just calling her a slut, they should call her a dyke. And, mm. and he and was hit like, it wow. home. Yeah. Wow. And so <laughs> spoiler alert, but a couple of uh, nasty boy patrol cops, uh, they paint dyke slut across you know, the window of her car and, and mm. that kind of kicks it off. And just the fact that I could take that to him, he took it to L. Johnson, who's, you know, an incredible producer, writer, and Elle really loved it. And Elle thought like, yeah, this, this really smacks of truth and this is what would happen. So, you know, again, I can't speak to, uh, you know, the kind of diversity, racial element of it, but from my perspective as a queer woman, yeah, there's always been an open discussion and people willing to listen. And I, I would hope that that's, I think that's been Osoko's experience also as, you know, a black man in the writer's room. Yeah, I think that's great to mention, right? Because that shows why representation across diverse groups of people is so important across the Absolutely. board when it comes to every type of industry and particularly an industry of this caliber. Because as Delora and I know, and you know, the power of entertainment is vast and far reaching and matters. Absolutely. And that's sometimes the windows that people have into groups that they've never interacted with is they see something on television or in a movie and they think that that's reality, right? So yep. it matters so much to be able to have these type of platforms and be able to use that power and that voice. So I think that's great. I wanted to piggyback off of that really quick um, in terms of my understanding, you know, with the racial reckoning of 2020, I didn't even realize that some cop shows were propaganda. You know what I mean? It yes. Didn't, it didn't, you know, click for me until after that. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're always, you know, place, some shows, you know, place as, you know, the, I hate to use this reference, but, you know, the, the cowboy, you know, the one to save yeah. the day, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, I, it took me, it, it took last year for me to realize that, you know, and to call it a spade, a spade, you know, <laughs> That's yeah, one of the regard. things that's one of the things I'm enjoying about the show is you really see a lot of Bosch's humanity immediately. Like it's not just yeah. about him being a police officer. He has a lot of layers to his yeah. background on that show. Yeah, I mean, he's I, I one of my favorite moments is actually in the pilot and it's one of my favorite character moments with Bosch. He's on the witness stand and Money Chandler played by the fabulous Mimi Rogers um who is just incredible. You know, she is she's putting Bosch's feet to the fire and brings up the fact that his mother was a prostitute. And, you know, 
you know, Bosch, mm. Bosch basically says she did what she had to do. Yeah. You know? It's like you, she had to put food on the table. She did what she had to do. And I felt like kind of speaking to, I think the responsibility of storytelling, but also doing it in a deft way. This is Eric Overmeyer's, he's brilliant. And this is part of his brilliance is Bosch is a feminist. Bosch is a deeply feminist character who loved his mother and appreciated the fact that, you know, she was looking out for him and she did what she had to do. And it didn't matter that she was a prostitute and that wasn't part of it. She was just a woman working hard and you couldn't come out in text and say, Bosch is a feminist, Bosch supports sex workers, Bosch isn't a judgmental, <laughs> sanctimonious, you know, character, but you quietly say that, you know, you quietly say that through the text and you quietly say these things. And I think also, yes. you know, when it comes to some of the storylines, I think, again, that's kind of Eric's brilliance is like getting these sneaky things into an audience that isn't expecting it. Because let's be real about who the majority of the Bosch audience is. It's largely white. It's largely middle class. Mm -hmm. It's largely middle-aged. So, and men. And men. And men. A lot of men. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A lot of men. So when you have that audience and when you know politically where that audience may or may not lean, there are a lot of things to say. But Eric is very good at saying them quietly. And I think the show is very good at laying these things in, in a way that is not just palatable because nobody is thinking of it as being palatable, but just in, in a realistic way. You know, if you have in season seven, again, with, with the billets storyline, I mean, people loved that storyline. We, we had a lot of really good feedback about the experience that she had because it rang true with so many women who have experienced that kind of harassment in the workplace. And then Jamie Hector, who's brilliant, as um, Harry's partner, Jay Edgar, you know, Jamie Hector after Bosch himself is, you know, he's the other most popular character on the show. And when you think about who our core audience is and how much they love this, you know, young black and detective. I was going to say, he's a black man. That's why you're bringing it yes. up. Yes. 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 And, you know, his, his storyline and, and, you know, all of these characters have missteps and all of these characters make mistakes. And I think they all are trying to be presented as very three-dimensional, but the fact that our audience loves them and appreciates them and likes the storylines, I think really speaks to Eric's very careful sensibilities and, and walking that line. Because I think mm -hmm. one, of, one of the best things TV can do and one of the best things movies can do is kind of slowly get people comfortable with different ideas and mm -hmm. with different people. You know, it's the, it's just going back to representation matters, both mm -hmm. behind the camera and in front of the camera. Absolutely. That's why a show like Modern Family was so important and pivotal when it came out so many years yes. ago. And yeah, so thank Absolutely. you for that answer. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question about your career again. Okay. So is there a famous producer that you admire and that you would be interested in modeling your career after? So it might be lame, but my boss actually has had a really incredible career. He, mm. if he, he, and your boss um, name again, we just want the audience to yeah, know who his he is. Name, Peter Jan Brugge. Uh, he's Dutch. So it's P I E T E R. Um, Peter Jan. Yeah. He, he's worked on some really huge movies. He did glory back in, I think that was the late eighties. Um, yep. 
and it's just, you know, Floor is incredible. Exactly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> exactly. That still, the, well, that single tear that rolls down his cheek oh my still gets me. Still Perfect. gets yeah. me. My God. Perfect. So, you know, Peter Jan, yeah, he did Glory. He worked um, on a few few movies with Michael Mann. Um, he did uh, Heat, which, you know, is like one of the, the best yes. cat and mouse cop, cops mm-hmm. and robbers kind of shows. Um, and Heat also, which is LA, you know, if you watch Heat, there's the, the huge, there's the big shootout by the US Bank Tower downtown. It's like, so he did that. Um, he was um, nominated, he and Michael Mann were nominated for The Insider, um, which, you know, another Michael Mann flick. Um, so Peter Yon yes. done a lot of, a lot of big movies, a lot of great movies. And he then made his transition into television and he picked like a really, he knew he, he could see the writing on the wall and he could see that the industry was moving more into premium television and that we were going to be entering this golden age of television, so to speak. Yes. But the reason, the reason I say I, I, I would like to model my career after him is I think he's made really good choices. So I think he has made really good choices in the movies that he's made. I know that he's turned down some big movies with some big directors because he has always wanted to keep his own artistic integrity and he's always wanted to have a seat at the table creatively Um, and I think he saw and he's always been he's been very good at navigating that and then he saw television as the place where he could continue to do that Um, and I think that it's just I think he's really smart and he's very good at what he does so I want to continue to be that smart and I want to make good choices and I want to be able to say that, yeah, I turned down these big job offers because of X, Y, and Z. And I maintained my own artistic integrity and my own self-worth and, you know, and did that. So I think that's, that's the one, the other one, because I'm not a, I'm not like a development producer that's another kind of producer is you have people who just develop shows (laughs) (laughs) and the financiers (laughs) so I'm not a development producer you know and I'm not a writer but you also have someone like Ava DuVernay who man Mm -hmm. I mean she came out Ava friend of the pod (laughs) Uh, absolutely (laughs) honestly I mean and and I think she's one who she is also a catch-all incredible producer I mean, she's a producer, she's a director, she can develop, she has her own company. But the thing I love, (laughs) yes, the thing I love Mm -hmm. the most about her is she's all about uplifting young, new voices Mm -hmm. and empowering female filmmakers or any kind of othered filmmaker and empowering them and giving them a shot. And I love that. I love that Queen Sugar has become this incubator for talent. Mm-hmm. Such a great think show. about think about yes. the number of writers and the number of directors, directors? especially the yes. directors. Yes, yes. Uh, a good uh, you know a friend of mine who uh, worked on Bosch for years is a is a director. She directed. I think Queen Sugar maybe was her first big episode of television. It was fabulous, wow. you know. Yes. And that was that was a huge game changer for Shaz and. You know, I, I think that's the other one. Ava's the other one because it's just like someone who uses her position absolutely for good and someone who understands that power in this industry is not finite and storytelling mm-hmm. is not finite, you know. And she's there's, unapologetic there's in doing that completely, too. Yes. Completely. She's, she's not interested in like hoarding anything for herself or, mm-hmm. or keeping this small group of people employed it's 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 all about spreading the love and it's all about 
you know, what are we doing here? We're telling stories yeah. and we need new voices to keep it fresh and interesting. Always getting that power and then reaching back, right? That's always beautiful yeah. to see no matter what industry. That's something I'm loving about even Simone Biles' journey is even though she's nearing her end as a gymnast, she's mm-hmm. all about the future and changing it for the better for the next generation that's coming up behind Absolutely. her. So that's a beautiful by her, thing. By her stepping down, those girls were able to win medals that they didn't even exactly. anticipate. Exactly. So. And shine. Yeah and shine it's beautiful absolutely so Teresa I know the answer to this because we talked about this at least I hope this is your answer what has been your best celebrity encounter thus far well so I know the answer that you're excited about but I don't think it was a true encounter because I had no actual interpersonal interaction the answer Ashley is hoping for is when Beyonce was uh, rehearsing yes. <laughs> her Coachella, her Coachella appearance Beach and her up. tour <laughs> near our offices, and I don't want to get too specific, but yes. So I mean, honestly, going into work every day and hearing Beyonce's set list for Coachella did not suck. <laughs> <laughs> and you also and said Blue Ivy unreal. took over your offices. Well, uh, one of the office suites that we weren't using, that was their kind of green room area because we were between seasons. And mm. um, yeah, and, you know, the whole family was there. What it, what it, The cool thing was, was seeing how hard Beyonce works. I mean, the cool thing was, is that she is no slouch and the goat I get you know Jay seemed supportive because he was there a lot with the kids <laughs> and you know yeah just the fact that it was clear that you know because of how often the kids were there because of how often he was there but she was there all the time and she was working so hard but she wasn't just focused on the performance she was also clearly you know focused on her family and I thought that that was mm-hmm. like kind of a really thing to see out of the biggest superstar in the world yes <laughs> yes. Um, yes but my uh, my I think my favorite celebrity encounter because I never met her I never crossed paths with her she has no idea who I am um <laughs> but my favorite encounter other than Beyonce um was actually when I did additional photography on La La Land Emma Stone was mm. wonderful mm. I Emma see Stone that. was so great oh, yes. I could definitely see that she seems yeah. like such a, a grounded funny person totally mm-hmm. super nice super grounded um our since we were just doing additional photography on La La Land she was in the middle of shooting Battle of the Sexes so we only had her on weekends and we only had Ryan Gosling on weekends so we oh when like she played Billie of- Jean King right Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we Mm -hmm. only had her for a couple of weekends while they were here in LA doing some of the the Los Angeles um, shooting for Battle of the Sexes. The cool thing was, though, it was a small office because it was just a couple of additional scenes that we were picking up. Um, But the costume department for La La Land was the same as Battle of the Sexes. So Emma knew the costumers really well. Mary Zoffers Mm. was the costume designer. She's brilliant. (laughs) Everything everything Mary Zoffers does is perfect. Um, But Emma didn't have like a lot going on for her fitting day. So she ended up just like hanging out in the offices because she just, I think she was like living somewhere else and she was just like stuck here for the day. And so, yeah, she was just like hanging out in the offices and I was the PA. So I was getting, I was doing the coffee and I was getting the lunches Mm -hmm. and she was like the easiest actor order I've ever taken. Mm. (laughs) She was like, she was just very nice. It was just like having a normal person and she's one of those, she's quiet, but she'll like quietly connect with people. She's not, Mm -hmm. 
I think the reason I remember her so well is that so many actors are like on, right? Yeah. That's their job. Their job is, their face is their job. Their personality is their job. I get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But every now and then you have someone who's just like a person. And I thought that that was nice. I could see that she has never seen like she's that big star type of Mm -mm. person. So I could totally see that. Now, do you have a worst celeb encounter that you want to speak to? (laughs) You don't have to. I I just wonder. No. I honestly don't. Um, I've been really fortunate. When I was working on really low budget stuff, I think nobody was famous. And then when I bumped into the high budget stuff, I think I think there's like a middle ground of awful personalities that I missed. <laughs> <laughs> so generally, in my experience, because I've been fortunate to work on big movies and and a you know big TV show. Um, Everybody who works a lot, everybody, like every A-lister I've come into contact with, and then our, our TV A-listers, they, they work a lot and they want to work a lot. And people don't keep working with people that are difficult. I mean, sometimes you do. There are some people that are going to be so big, someone who, who is, you know, so famous and has so much star power that you do yeah. have to put up with them. That does exist. I've never encountered it, luckily. Cause I don't, I don't think I'd have the patience for it, <laughs> but I've been very fortunate that, yeah, if you look at the movies and TV shows that I've done every single person, you know, people have their personality quirks and there are certain special requests and things like that, but that's understandable. I'm picky yeah. about stuff, but no, I've been really fortunate. Everybody's been, everybody's been cool. Everybody's been nice. You know, you can make eye contact with everybody. Which is <laughs> you can speak to them. You don't have to you can speak to them. Keep walking and don't interact totally. like um, no. in some people's um, letters to their staff members. So we won't yeah. put that name out there on the mic, yeah. but he knows who he is. <laughs> so do you have a preference between big budget projects versus indie ones? Like, do you I have- sure do. Okay. I like, I like money. I like big budget. <laughs> I think there's, I, I think there's, I, <laughs> I think there's always the, the implication that when you get to a big budget show or a big budget picture that suddenly the studio has all of the control and suddenly it's not a family anymore. And in my experience, that hasn't, that hasn't been the, the case. Now I haven't worked on a huge Marvel picture. I haven't worked on a huge Star Wars Lucasfilm mm-hmm. thing. But even then, the people that are making those are passionate about what they do. Everybody who's in charge at Lucasfilm is the biggest Star Wars nerd in the universe. So even though there is (laughs) this like, you know, and the same at Marvel, they're all comic book geeks. Like there, there are the suits on the side who, you know, well, from a market research perspective, this is what we should do. But I do think that Mm -hmm. even on those things, people are really passionate about what they do. And, you know, for the most part, people who get to that level have gotten to that level because they love what they do and they care about what they're doing. So in my experience on the big budget things, it still is a family as gross and (laughs) as gross as it sounds. And as, you know, maybe trite as it sounds, Bosch became a family over seven seasons, even on the spinoff, we still have maintained so much of our crew. There is still a huge number of people that have been on since the pilot of season one and that have stuck around because it's a good place to work. The producers take care of everybody. We don't ask them to work crazy hours. But part of the way we can do that and part of the way the crew can be protected is because it's big budget and most importantly, because it's union. So indie stuff is great. There's a lot of expression in indie stuff. And again, I know that there is something when I was working on more indie things, 
you're kind of going through the shit with people. It's like, it's like mm. a war zone. You're just like, you're, it's like you mm. against the clock and it's you against the budget. Cause and we that broke, galvanizes. Baby. Cause we broke, yeah. right. We're in this we together. Do this together. <laughs> we, we have to, we have to gorilla shoot. We got to steal this location. We got to do all of that. Um, and that's, that's galvanizing and it, and it can really bring people together. And I think sometimes pressure does foster some really interesting, creative mm-hmm. things. Yeah. However, um, I, I'm a big pro union gal. I, you know, I like the big budgets because, you know, it's a union show, you know, people are being compensated fairly, you know, mm-hmm. people aren't being taken advantage of. There's always the mm-hmm. anecdotes that people mock the, the, the like Hollywood unions. Cause it's like, Oh, you know, you can't plug this, you know, extension cord. We call it a stinger. You can't plug this stinger into the wall. An electrician has to do that. And it's like, yeah, there are those things where it's like, it -hmm. seems like the smallest innocuous thing we -hmm. get weird about like, Oh no, only this person can do it. Not this person. But what that comes from is just protecting, protecting people at work. So you shouldn't be paying someone as a PA and then asking them to be a grip and asking them to be an electrician because mm-hmm. those are hard jobs. They're dangerous mm-hmm. jobs. They can be in the wrong hands. And, you know, you shouldn't be asking people to do work that they're not being compensated for and that they haven't been properly trained for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's a big budget. Yeah. Okay. Protecting Great. the workers. Thank you. Awesome. What has surprised you most about working in your industry, you think? Oh, oh my God. So many things. I think the biggest surprise is how much goes into making a TV show and not even just the, the tricks and the things you see on camera, but it's like an iceberg, you know, like any movie and any TV show is an iceberg and what you see on the screen and what the audience is aware of the actors and the directors and even the writers are just the tip of the iceberg. It's actually so big. There are so many people involved. There are so many expenses. (laughs) (laughs) It's so expensive and it's not just so expensive because the actors make a lot of money and because the directors and the writers make a lot of money. Um, They deserve that money. Um, Mm -hmm. But the, just the number of people, the number of offices, the number of lunches, all of the equipment, all of the different things that go into it. I think that's what really shocked me was just, you know, for, for just something that you think is a really straightforward movie or TV show, it's actually this enormous animal. Yeah. And all the approvals it has to get to before it's yeah. even greenlit, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, even, even the green lighting thing, it's like you will have shows that get bought. You'll have features that get bought. They'll go through script processes. They'll go through edits and edits and edits. And then maybe they never get made. And then maybe it Man. gets shoved in a box somewhere. And, and if you how think about upsetting. all of that, that's, yeah. that's why that's they really talk about rough. some people, how it takes them. Oh, I've been with this project for years and years and yeah. years and years and years and years. Even um, one of our faves, Debbie Allen, talking about how long it took her to get Amistad made and the process yes. of having to find a producer in um, Steven Spielberg to even want to touch it and bring it to the yes. screen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think Delora and I deal with it on such a baby scale with our podcast, but we definitely mm-hmm. on day one did not know what we were getting ourselves fully into. No. When it came to everything that we have to do on a regular basis. All right, Teresa, if you were not a Hollywood producer, what would you be? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, maybe I would be a music teacher. 
you know, teach in marching band. Mm. Before I decided to come to LA, I flirted with maybe getting an MBA and going into business, um, <laughs> maybe going to nursing school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was all over the place. I, I I almost feel like, yeah, I almost like fell into this job and fell into this industry, but mm-hmm. it's one of those things that I feel that I feel so strongly that like, this is where I'm meant to be. This is yeah. the place. This is what I'm like, this is what I'm perfectly suited to is this like, kind of creative but production oriented you know producer voice so it's a hard question I don't I I think I have no idea maybe I'd I don't know you have no idea how much of a Hollywood (laughs) answer that is though because I feel like (laughs) I'm sorry I love it because I feel like whatever I hear like an actor or musician or actress ask that question or like honestly don't know because this is all that I'm good at like if this if I if this did not work out for me I had no plan b so I mean at least you had some backup plans you know that's the thing it's like I think I yeah I have a degree and I think you know being kind of the the kind of producer that I am lends itself a little more easily to different industries. The same that, you know, we have production accountants, you have like entertainment lawyers, you have a lot of these, like the construction department, they could all be contractors. Um, Mm -hmm. All of this, you know, there, there are a lot of parts of, of the, you know, places in the industry where there's very clearly applicable skills. But I think it's one of those things that I think everybody probably answers that way because this is such a weird kind of magical place to work. And this is kind of Mm -hmm. such a weird thing that everybody's aware of and everybody's fascinated with. Mm -hmm. And that I think once you're in it, you, I I think a lot of people lose the appreciation for it. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to maintain my Mm -hmm. bright doe-eyed Midwestern um, (laughs) approach to things because I kind of never, I never want to forget how ridiculous this job is. We play very expensive pretend like that's yes. what the job mm-hmm. is we're Absolutely. playing pretend and it's really expensive pretend but also it reaches a lot of people and people love it and it's just it's such a it's such a strange industry and it's such a strange animal that I think it almost warps your ability <laughs> to even be able to do anything else because it's like what else is What's there? as cool as this? What is as cool Absolutely. as this? And yeah. I actually giggled at your answer about getting MBA because both Ashley and I got our master's degree at the yeah. same time. That's, <laughs> so how we met. that's how we met. That's how we met. That's where this, <laughs> that's like, where, that's where our okay. love affair began was getting our master's degrees. Um, yeah. So our final question for you, what advice would you offer to those mm. looking to begin a career? And I'm gonna call it highly weird. And that's no disrespect, we talked about how weird it is. So it's so weird. weird. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things. I think the first thing is to really figure out what you want to do and not just what you want to do, but I think it's important for people to have a realistic understanding of what they can do. I think it's great to have dreams and you know, I think people should absolutely go for what they want to go for, but I do think it's good to be realistic. I'm not an actor. I don't have that skill set. I am not a writer. Like I'm a good writer. I can write prose. I always did really well in English, but there's like fundamentally a kind of writing that you 
you need for screenwriting. There's a certain fire that you need for that. And I just don't have that. It's not something I'm going to pursue. So I think being realistic about your, you know, someone's own limitations, but also being persistent. If you believe that this is what you're supposed to do, I think you have to be absolutely persistent because it's all about luck. It's all about meeting that one right person who's going to open the floodgates for you. And I think not giving up is big Um, and working hard, of course, but also knowing that it is mostly about luck. And so you've got to keep going and you've got to You've got to keep trying if this is what you really believe you want to do. But my second thing, and this is just kind of like a little soundbite nugget, is you're going to have a lot of people once you're here offering help and and saying, you know, let me know if I can help you with anything. Let me know if you have any questions, all of that kind of stuff. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you. I think the biggest thing is having a very clear request for those people. So it's not helpful for even someone at my level. I mean, it's not helpful for me if I have someone who's a Hollywood perspective, you know, in whatever, it's not helpful for me if that person says, I'll do anything. I, I want to do anything. I'll do it. Like that seems like the right answer because you're hungry and you just want to know anything and you want to, you want to get some understanding, but that's not helpful for me because I don't actually know what that means. And I don't know how to actually help you. So what's helpful is having a really clear answer saying, I would love to be on a set. I would love to be a set PA. I want to see how the set works. I would love to be an office PA. I want to see how all of the offices function. I would love to get into the props department. I would love to do this or that. Just having a very clear answer so that then someone like me can say, oh, great. Let me like send your resume to these ADs to get you on the set. Let me send your resume to this post producer I know who is looking for PAs in post-production. I think, I think having like a clear path and a clear answer to exactly how someone can help you is what you need to do. So what I'm hearing is vision board, have that set yeah. out, goal yeah. set, writing your journal, yeah. know do what your you're research. doing. Do your research. <laughs> and are Try people to learn actually the helpful though? Are people actually yes. helpful? That's yes, good. in my experience. And again, so I'm a relatively young these days. But we are I'm, still young, sis. Yes. We are young. Period. Period. <laughs> but I, am, I don't I, understand anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the thing is, is yes, in my experience, people are extremely helpful. But I also recognize that I am a young, straight passing, educated white woman. There are a lot of things about who I am that make it easier for me and perhaps make people even more willing to help me. So I think that's the first thing I need to recognize is yes, I've found this industry extremely helpful, um, but someone who has a different background than me might have a different answer. But in general, yeah, I mean, people, people know that people need help getting into the industry, everybody, even, even if it's Prince Nepotism, even Prince Nepotism knows how hard the industry is to get into and will generally be helpful. Yeah, yeah, again, that's my experience. Well, Teresa, I think we're going to leave it there with you for today, but I feel like Delora and I, no, thank you. I feel like Delora and I may have so many questions thereafter. Maybe some of our listeners will. So hopefully you'll be willing to come back and join us at some point if we need you to. Literally anytime. But it has been been phenomenal. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you you so much, Teresa. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You guys ask hard questions also. (laughs) You have good questions. Thank you. We're working on it. We're working on it. But I hope that our listeners got some great gems. And Teresa, again, thank you so much. And good luck with the Bosch spinoff, girl. I'm going to be calling you. Thank you, guys. Keep watching. So exciting. Call me with questions. Absolutely.
first interview down, Delora. Ashley, I am still pinching myself. I cannot believe <laughs> we just did that. And she was such an amazing guest. Thank you so much, Teresa. Yes, we appreciate you being our first guest, you stepping on our show as your first podcast. It was yes. wonderful having you. Such a privilege. Thank yes. you. From the bottom of my heart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We hope that you guys enjoyed and we look forward to getting more industry insiders on to talk shop and knowledge drop. So Delora and I are taking a little break because you know right now and then we got to take a break, but we will return with a brand new episode next Thursday. So stay tuned. Bye.